The scripture reading today comes from Matthew 18, 23 through 27, as well as 1 John 2, 12. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and his payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant, master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. In 1 John 2.12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Good morning. Great to have you all, uh, all out today. We've got a good many people who are from our, our regular attendants here who are gone today, but we have visitors and we're really happy to have you. It's great to have Kendra back. We all prayed a lot for her and just so good to see her back and that all went well. We're, we're, we're very thankful and grateful to God for that. Um, I'm going to need a clicker. Thank you. Linda read my mind. Um, what I want to do today is talk about uh, love and forgiveness, as you can see on the screen. Um, talk about the relationship between love and forgiveness. Um, uh, this calendar year, we have, uh, as a congregation, been focusing on uh, God's love, various aspects of God's love and what the implications are for our relationship with Him and for our relationship with other people. Um, Back in the 18th century, an English poet by the name of Alexander Pope uh, said something that we still quote a portion of quite a bit, and that is, to err is human, to forgive divine. Recognizing that it was one of God's most elemental core traits to be a God of forgiveness. Humans may have trouble with that, but our whole reason that we're here today is predicated upon the mercy and grace of God, the, the fact that one of his attributes is this forgiving uh, spirit or forgiving character. And that's what we're going to look at this morning today. Uh, connect our theme for the year from 1 John 4, um, trying to understand God's love as the sort of fountainhead of all things Christian. Um, and then what is that, how does that relate to this, this idea of forgiveness? So uh, pretty straightforward sermon this morning. Glad you're here. Hope you benefit from it. I want to basically, as we consider this relationship between love and forgiveness, uh, consider three basic questions. The first of which is, um, is this, what is God's response to our sins against him? We need to lay that down, first of all, as a foundation. How does God respond to our sins? And I'm going to be using today several texts, but one of the main ones will be the parable of the, of the unforgiving uh, servant over in Matthew chapter 18. And I want to begin uh, by turning to that. A piece of that was read a minute ago for us. So in Matthew 18, verse 23, Jesus begins this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, however, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And uh, my margin rendering in my ESV says that 10,000 talents, um, if you do the math, um, it ends up being that this is an amount that would equal about, are you ready for this? 200,000 years worth of wages. 200, if I said to you, you owe somebody a thousand years of your pay, it's over, right? I mean, you're not getting that. 
I, I, go to, I go to debtor's prison, I do whatever you have to do, and there wasn't bankruptcy laws back then, right? So it, it's, it, owing money was a bigger deal uh, even 100 years ago in America, but ancient times, it, you know, it could be horrendous. People sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. And this is a, you know, it sounds like these are servants, so this would be the, the wages of, of, a, of a, you know, sort of probably an unskilled laborer or something like that, but still, for him, it's 200,000 years worth of wages, so it's a bit of an understatement to say, as verse 25 says, he could not pay. <laughs> really? Yeah, of course. He, uh, no one could pay that. No one in this room, no one on, uh, in, in the history of earth could pay this kind of uh, debt. And the point that's being made here isn't about a financial debt. That's a metaphor for the spiritual debt that we are, uh, you know, we owe God. Because of our transgressions, we come up short by a, 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 a sum that cannot be paid back. Ephesians 2 uses a different kind of metaphor, life and death, but it says the same thing basically. When we stand before God, we are dead in our trespasses. Dead. You are hopelessly in debt. You are dead. And there are probably 50 other ways the scriptures would use to talk about this problem. This sort of axiom that, that the whole Bible story begins with virtually, I mean, on, on the third page of Genesis, you get the problem. And the whole rest of the book, the whole rest of the narrative, the story is about that basic problem. That's what we start with as human beings. We come up short. We owe a debt we cannot pay. But the point I'm making here is, is, is that this, this just backlights. This puts in bold relief how astounding is the forgiveness of God. Because in Matthew 18, he continues this parable to say, the servant falls on his knees, imploring him, begging him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Right. Right. You're going to say anything in a situation like that. You don't want to go to jail. I'll, pay, I'll do anything. Just have patience. And I don't, I don't think that the master here who represents God in the story is convinced that he's going to pay him back. He just had pity on him, it says. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. God releases, God forgives. And he does it because of pity. 1 John chapter 2 puts it this way, and this is the, the, the book from which we've been taking our annual theme, not this chapter, but it's all thematically related, of course. He says this in 1 John 2.12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. In other words, the entire relationship that the recipients of the first epistle of John have with God in the first place is because of this, because your sins, I can write to you as Christians because your sins are forgiven. It starts with God giving that, granting that out of his mercy. And then we have some ability to have a conversation with God, to have him hear our prayers, to, to benefit from him, to have any kind of relationship at all because your sins are forgiven. And earlier in this same chapter, 1 John 2, he says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. God doesn't want you sinning. But if anyone does sin, the story isn't over. You're not hopelessly in debt. In a, the amount that you can never, in an amount you can never hope to repay, he says. Instead, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's 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 making our case for us continually, and he is in fact the propitiation for our sins. God initiates and and gives us this freedom. And I want you to just think for a minute. 
what joy, what lightness, what um, freedom, really, that this, this really gives us. The, the fact that your sins, all the things you've done, and I know that we could all come up with a list um, of, of things that we're glad nobody knows about. Every one of us, I, I think. And if you, if you don't think you have any of those, we'll add that one to your list. Because that's another kind of more, a more scary kind of sin. C.S. Lewis has this famous passage where, and I'm not, I can't quote it, but I can paraphrase it, where he says, the person who, is, who deals with lust and anger and you know, things like that, what he calls the animal passion-based sins, is, is much closer to God, potentially, than the self-righteous prig sitting on the front pew every week judging everybody. That's a whole nother level, because you're kind of acting like you're God. I got it all figured out. My job is to sort of speak for God, you know? So we've all got a list of things, whether people know them or don't, that, that are, are just, we, we wish they weren't there, but you can't erase history. Guess what? He says, Jesus has been offered for the propitiation of our sins. And that is a joyful thing to contemplate. I love Micah 7. This passage reminds me of Bob Garrett. I was telling Cherie this morning, every time I read it, Bob gave a talk one time, probably out of the side of his brain, on, the, on a fly, and it stuck with me forever, you know, because he could do that. He was smart. But it also just says there's a lot of things that we, we don't know the impact we're having sometimes. I never read this passage without thinking of him. Who is a God like you? By the way, Micah means who is likened to God. So does Michael. All the Michaels in our room here. Who, who is God? Who is a God like you? Why is he asking that question? You pardon iniquity. A God who could actually pass over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Who, who is like that among the gods? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in what? Love, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He says he will tread our iniquities, our lawless disregard for his rules and his ways. He'll tread them underfoot. He'll stomp them into just mush. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Think about how big the ocean is. Right? How deep the ocean is. It freaks me out to think about the Marianas Trench or the Puerto Rican Trench. These things that are like, you know, more than, you know, like four or five miles deep or something. It just blows my mind to think about that kind of depth. I mean, you can drown in three feet of water. I don't know why it's any scarier, but it just is. It's just so vast. It's so, you lose something. Imagine you're on a cruise going across the Puerto Rican Trench and you drop something over the edge. Bye-bye, <laughs> right? Forever. He casts all our sins in the depths of the sea. I want you to think about your sins. And this is how gone they are from God's mind because of Jesus. There's your sins. And whatever they are, they're just, you, you can't find them again. And God, that's what God does for us. It's astounding. It's remarkable. And it comes from God's compassion. And that, that's really the source of this astounding forgiveness. It comes from God inherently. It doesn't come from us inherently. It's not because he looks at you, oh, that's a, I could, that person could bring a lot. They got a lot to offer. I better make a deal with them. No, it's not like that at all. We don't have anything. We fall short of his glory, and it comes from his innate character. Isaiah captures this in Isaiah 43, 25, when he says, I, I am he. Who, here's God's sort of statement of who he is, his identity. 
I am he who blots out your transgression. Why? For my own sake. There are a whole lot of passages that talk about that, where God says, it's for my sake that I'm doing this. It grows out of who I am. I want to do this. And he says, I will not remember your sins. Isn't that amazing? I don't think that saying God is, loses his omniscience and he literally cannot remember what you did, but there's a sense in which this is so out, out of his heart now and out of his mind and out of the sort of scorecard or whatever we, we imagine he uses, that's so gone that it's just, it didn't happen. I'm not remembering. When I think of you, that's not what I, I think of. When I see you, I see if you're in Christ, I see Jesus. I don't see you anymore. I see that propitiation for the sins. And all of this came from God. It's, it, he blots out transgressions because that's who he is. He does it for his own internal sake. That's beautiful. That means it doesn't hang on me. It's not contingent on, on, you know, on me bringing the perfect thing to him like I have to do every day a thousand times in the marketplace of life, right? I got to impress you. I got to worry about what you think of me. I got to worry about what's on, you know, my Facebook profile or what the boss thinks of me or can I get this deal? Can I get them to listen to me? Can I persuade so and so of this or that or the other? God's just doing it for his own sake. His innate character. His inherent compassion. My favorite psalm, as I probably say every time I ever quote this, Psalm 103 is my favorite for, in part because of this analogy. God shows compassion like a father. Think of a good father, not a bad father. I know we don't all have great fathers, um, but we, mo uh, we can at least imagine one. I, I'm grateful to God that my dad was ex incredibly compassionate. Um, but a father shows compassionate to his children, shows compassion to his children. And in the same way, he says, that's what the Lord is like to us. If we're seeking him and fearing him, he's like a daddy who is showing compassion to his little child. And Why? Because he knows what we're made of. He knows our frame and remembers that we are but dust. So he can, he can sort of get in our shoes and empathize and know what we're going through. And therefore, from his character flows this mercy, this compassion, this grace. All right, but that raises an, a question, another question. That first question leads on to a second question. God is responding to our sins with forgiveness. But what does that say about how we respond to others when they wrong us. How does this forgiveness from God change our response to other people when they sin against us? Are those connected in your mind? Or are you just happy with the first one and you don't think about the second one? Or maybe you think about the second one when you have to because those kinds of people wronging you, that's going to intrude on your life. But there, there, there's no conceptual thematic connection between how God has responded to your sins against Him and how you respond to others when they sin against you. They are supposed to be inextricably connected in the Bible. It's so easy to show this. I, I had to, this is one of the sermons where I had to go through and go like, all right, I've got 15 passages to talk about this. So I've got to cut. Well, you're probably thinking, don't, you, you never do that. Why start, you know? But I actually do. You just don't know it. Um, I'm capable of way more painful orations. <laughs> I, you just don't even know. Um, so let, let's think about this. God wants us, the basic point is this, God wants us to imitate Him. So when we think about Micah 7 saying, I've taken your sins and thrown them to the depths of the ocean. Think about this now with regard to somebody who sinned against you. Something that has really bothered you, maybe bothering you right now. Somebody has wronged you, slighted you, caused you pain, trauma, physical, financial, emotional, spiritual. 
they're just sticking in your craw and you really your joy is, is it's hard to find your joy because of what somebody or somebody's are doing to you or have done to you or, or done in general whatever you've got that thing anybody relate yeah so here's the thing God wants you to throw those sins to the bottom of the ocean huh he's not just saying I'm gonna do this for you now you just go do whatever you want <laughs> Just be as unlike me as you possibly can in responding to wrong. No, he wants us to imitate him. So it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a convicting thing. Throwing the sins of others against me to the bottom of the ocean. In John 13, 13, Jesus says to his disciples on the, in the, during the Last Supper, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper and culminating this idea of Passover because he's going to be now the sacrificial lamb, he says, a new commandment I'm going to leave with you. And it's this, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another also. So the way God has loved us, most elementally, most fundamentally, most basically, is to show us forgiveness, right? Um, he loved us so, and He sent His Son so that we wouldn't perish but, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. Love for God is forgiveness. At least that's a huge part of it. So when he's calling us to love others the way he's loved us, he's calling us to forgive like he forgives. No? I don't know how that could be otherwise. In 1 John 4, 19, our theme verse for the year, we love because he first loved us. Well, that means we're to be motivated by the kind of love that God showed us, but that's also our model for the kind of love we're to then share with others. We're imitating our Father. And so we've got to do that when it comes to this area of, of forgiveness. And we can see this here in, in our text. I'm, we, we haven't read the whole parable today, um, and we, we will read most of it in bits and pieces. But this is that parable of the unforgiving uh, uh, servant who receives forgiveness, right? He owes 200,000 years worth of wages. And his master, the Lord, in the story, says... I release you from that. I forgive you from that. You don't have to go pay the price. You don't have to go to jail. What gave rise to this parable? Why did Jesus tell it in the context of Matthew? Anybody remember this? Peter. He, Jesus had been talking about forgiveness earlier, and then Peter comes up to him, and the, this is the, these are the immediate verses right before the parable. It's the context for the parable. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often... Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like, how, how far do we have to go with this? Maybe Peter's thinking, you know, I know somebody who's done something to me twice, the same thing. Not kidding. Lord, you're not going to believe this. Two times. He did the same thing. He did it, asked for my forgiveness, I forgive him, and he did it again. Because none of us never, ever have done that to God, right? Have you ever committed the same sin and then gone to God again? Anybody done that 15 times? How about a couple hundred? That's me. I'll just be straight up honest. I, that, most of the things I struggle with are the same three or four over and over and over. They're called weaknesses. <laughs> and we've all got them. They're different. You struggle with different things than I do, maybe. Maybe we struggle with some of the same things. But almost by definition, we're going to the Lord over and over and over for the same thing. Are you sincere each time? Maybe, maybe not. But just the fact that you've gone for multiple times doesn't mean you're insincere. I, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't be here today. You mess up again. You're sincerely sorry again. Look what he says. How many times, Lord, should I forgive him? 
are you talking like seven, something crazy? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Your version may say 490. It can, it's hard to tell what this can be. It can be either. I'm going to go with 77 here. That's what the ESV puts. Either way. When's the last time you forgave somebody for the same thing 77 times? Jesus is saying do that. And I want to, there's a biblical resonance here, going back to the book of Genesis. Genesis, which lays down, you know, sort of the first principles, the paradigms, the, the, the sort of archetypes of everything that not only the rest of the Bible deals with, but that we experience in life. So Genesis, after the fall in Genesis 3, you start getting, you know, God made everything beautiful. He, everybody's supposed to be fruitful and multiply. There's shalom everywhere. And then sin comes in and there, where there was all this unity and things were working together and thriving, there's now alienation of every kind and things begin to spin out of control. Adam blames Eve and Eve blames Adam and Cain kills Abel. And then we get this little weird story in Genesis 4 as you're sp sort of spiraling down toward the flood when God's kind of kind of decreate and recreate and then start it all over, right? And go, hey, I, all right, I want you to be fruitful, multiply again. He keeps fixing it and we keep messing it up. Well, part of the mess up and a kind of paradigm of one of the most ancient ways, and I would say it's a rival, it's the primordial rival for forgiveness. It goes back to the beginning of humanity. It's the, 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 when it comes to how do we handle conflict, how do we handle this when somebody wrongs us, there's this ancient way of handling it that is the, the competitor, the chief competitor with forgiveness, and it's revenge. It's in a whole lot of our movies. I'd say if they're not like a love story or something, it's pretty much that th that's the theme. We don't have Colt, you know, 45, you know, and Winchester 94s on the horseback anymore. That's what they used to be when I was growing up. Now they're, you got, you know, it's science fiction. But it's, it's revenge. This is as old as humans. But it's not presented in a positive light in the Bible. Remember Lamech? Just kind of comes out of the blue. And he, he's, we don't know what he's talking about. He's killed somebody. And he starts talking to his wife and talking about how perfect his revenge is going to be. He says, I have killed a man. This is Genesis 4. I have killed a... a hey, dear, i got something to tell you. Today I killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then mine, he says, Lamech's is going to be 77-fold. That's a biblical way of saying perfect sevens. Perfect revenge. Complete revenge. No one will look at Lamech and say... He didn't give a guy justice. I gave him justice. And here's Jesus, and he says what? The exact number of times that Lamech was going to get his vengeance, Jesus says that's how many times you should forgive. You think that's an accident? Perfect revenge. That's one thing to seek. It never works. You just enter the spiral of violence, as it's called. It's Hatfields and McCoys. You got me. Well, I got you. Well, you got you. Well, you got you. Well, you got you. It just goes on for centuries. It is hopelessly futile. And here's Jesus saying there's another way, and it's the way of forgiveness. Seventy-seven times you should forgive. And here's the thing we do, though. We read all this, and we love it in theory, especially when we're thinking about our relationship with God, because we know if we're honest, we can't stand with Him. We, we, there, there's no other way we can have a relationship with Him. So we love it. We're enthralled. We want to read about it. And then somebody wrongs us. And our refusal to forgive in the way that God forgives is rationalized away. 
We've got all these good reasons, these justifications for withholding. Essentially what we're doing is withholding full forgiveness. We expect it from God, but then we turn around to somebody else and we get all these reasons. Good thing God doesn't do that with us. So let's talk about that for a minute. Because I think this is often where the rubber meets the road. In Matthew 18, 27 through 30, we read this. Out of pity for this guy who owes 200,000 years worth of wages, out of pity, God, the master of that servant, released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, here's kind of the pivot point in the heart of the parable, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which the equivalent of is about three months' worth of wages. That's a lot of money. Somebody said, you owe me three months' wages, I'd be really bummed out. You would too. But man, that's doable. 200,000 years is just, he's just throwing out a number like, you know, it, it, no way. You can't do it. It's hopeless. Shoot me now. I mean, you know, he owes him a tiny fraction of what he was forgiven. And he seizes him by the throat, begins to choke him and say, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. The same exact request. You think that's, that's the whole point here. Trying to get us to have some self-awareness. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. We rationalize it away. I don't know what his rationalizations were. Here's some common ones that maybe you've used before. Well, they haven't, this is a biggie, they haven't really repented. They haven't truly repented. It wasn't sincere. How would you know that? How would I know somebody else's heart? Another one. Well, they're not really sorry. They're just sorry they got caught. What about King David? When did David, what events led to David's repentance? I think it was, we were fairly on safe ground to say David, King David's repentance for murder and adultery and murder with Bathsheba and Uriah respectively, that those were legitimate and sincere because Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 were written about his penitence and they made the canon. I think that's the Holy Spirit saying that he really did repent. What precipitated David's repentance? Anybody? He got caught. He was going along, covering it up, and it says kind of ominously, but the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. David wasn't thinking about that. It wasn't until he is indicted by Nathan, caught, that he really repents. You can get caught and really repent. I don't know why people always say that. He's not, he, just scared, he just got caught. Just like King David, the man after God's own heart. So we, we, a lot of these rationalizations are just that. We're trying to justify because we don't want to forgive. We want to hold people to it. We're more concerned about getting our pound of flesh and them paying than we are being like our God. And we don't think about the huge negative ramifications for them. Remember in 1 Corinthians when that guy who was uh, committing adultery with, one of it, with, with a relative and they said, you need to withdraw yourselves from him. And they did that because by 2 Corinthians he's repented. But then Paul's saying, you need to show him mercy and love. You need to enwrap him in acceptance or he's going to be back in the devil's camp. When we don't forgive people like we should, we are inviting the devil back into their life. 
Not many people can live with that. The kind of burden of like, I've repented and nobody doesn't. I sometimes wonder, looking around our culture nowadays, if anybody really believes in grace. It's like, you did this thing, you know, you're going to pay forever. And it's self-righteousness versus self-righteousness. There's progressive liberal self-righteousness, just like there's conservative stodgy self-righteousness. It's just self-righteous in another angle. And here's the gospel saying a third way, a middle way, a diff totally different way from a different planet. But we don't want any part of it except on the end of receiving it. How do we rationalize it away? Let's be honest, folks. Let this sink in and hurt a little bit. It hurts me. Another one is, well, you know, they've committed the same infraction many times. We already talked about that one. Or, this is a big one, what they did is off the chart. It, it, that's different. Maybe it's a sin that you held up as a worse sin. And we, I don't know where we get these pecking orders. David did murder and adultery, so I'm, I'm glad that's in the Bible. I'm, I'm not glad he did it, but I'm glad God shared it with us. It gives us a little bit of hope. Or, what so-and-so did was especially hurtful to me. I've got a level of pain and trauma you don't know about. can be a rationalization for not forgiving. God doesn't say, unless it really hurt you. Did it really hurt the Father to send Jesus to die on the cross? And to hear His words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why, you know, why have you forsaken me? And He just has to look at it. Did that hurt? So that's not really a justification to not forgive. Or, I, I'm not perfect. This is another common one. We do the little sort of official theological box checking. I, I, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But here it comes. The I'm not perfect stuff isn't really relevant because it really, it's not sinking in to where we live and think and feel, is it? It's just the kind of, oh, I know I'm not perfect. But and here it goes. I don't see how any Christian could do that. And if we, we have a thousand ways to end up not forgiving others like God forgave us. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that repentance is important. It's essential. God wants sinners to repent. He wants us to repent, and He wants the people who wronged us to repent. And we're to instruct one another in a loving way, in a self-aware way, that they, they, they need to repent. We're to admonish one another in a spirit of gentleness, looking to ourselves, lest we, we, lest we also be tempted, as Paul wrote to the Galatians. But those instructions about admonishing and trying to encourage each other to repent and holding each other accountable, those aren't given to us, folks, as a trump card with which to negate all the forgiveness mandate in the Bible. So we can just say, all of that, he said, he, what, he, I guess he was kidding on, because we are also told they need to repent. We need to be grateful, in my view, that God is nowhere nearly so tight-fisted with His grace and mercy as we can be. In God's universe, mercy flows freely. Even upon the ungrateful and the evil. Look what Jesus says in Luke 6. Verse 33, he says, and if you do good to those who do good to you, he kind of says whoop de doo right? That would be the message's version. I bet Eugene Peter says whoop de doo I haven't looked it up, but, <laughs> um, but you know, what benefits that? Everybody does that. That's the most visceral, tribal, you know, mob mentality, you know. But love your enemies and do good and you're going to be sons and daughters of the most high because look what God is like 
Look around you in your world as evidence to see that God is kind and, uh, to the ungrateful and the evil. It rains, as Jesus says in a sort of parallel thing over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, it rains on the just and the unjust. God is every day blessing people who haven't repented yet, who may not believe His existence is real. What about this one? God showed His love toward us, Romans 5, 8 says, in that while we were still sinners, we're in the moment doing our thing, ignoring Him, being apathetic, rebelling against Him. We are sinning. We are sinners. Right then, He is dying on the cross for us. He doesn't say, if they really repent, I'll die on the cross for them. God's universe is just, there's grace and mercy flowing. This is His character. There's a spirit of, of, of forgiveness in God's basic nature that He's calling us to, folks, as His children. He's our Father. We're His kids. We're supposed to have His traits. We're supposed to favor Him. This is not a picture, I think you'll agree with me, of a stingy, tight-fisted forgiveness that you can maybe wring out of God if it's His good day. <laughs> right? No, it's a spirit of grace, of free-flowing forgiveness that is the, at the heart of who God is. And folks, He wants us to be characterized by that same spirit of forgiveness. Otherwise, why write things like this? 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers, love covers a multitude of sins. What does it mean to say love covers sin? Right? It's, it's like the salve that flows, we're all going to sin, we need to be loving each other, forgiving each other, covering each other's sins. And I found this one really astounding, especially if you're minded to think, well, I don't have to forgive them until they repent. Now, they need to repent for their own sake with God. I don't think the Bible teaches that forgiveness is always limited to, you have to give me a contractual that for that, you know. I don't. There's too many verses which you can't explain that way. A couple of them we just quoted. God's just showing people grace and mercy all the time who are wildly impenitent. What about this general statement about prayer? Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Well, who? Doesn't say. Just forgive. And then he kind of fleshes it out, but it's not in a narrow, specific, case-based kind of thing where I'm not going to forgive you unless you repented. No, it's if you have anything against anyone. If anybody, anywhere, about anything, these are big words, any, 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 right? If they've sinned again, just pray, forgive. Your heart, your spirit, your character ought to be so uh, defined by forgiveness that you're just willing to forgive all the time. They need to repent. We need to encourage people to repent. No question. And reconciliation doesn't often happen without that. That's a different matter. But repentance, that's supposed to be part of our DNA that came from Calvary, that God alone can confer and is willing to do it if we'll let Him. And if we don't imitate God in this forgiving spirit, this forgiving heart, there are some severe warnings in Scripture that are actually quite frightening. Matthew chapter 6 is one of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, this makes the cut of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, telling us in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer as it's come to be known, 
in Matthew 6, 12, we're to forgive, we're to ask God to forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Remember the word debt is, is the very concept, uh, a debt of transgression is the very concept in the parable of the unforgiving uh, uh, servant. And then he says in verse 14, for if, you're, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So even if we're coming at this with just a kind of raw, selfish bent, like how, how can I get the best out of things? For God and me, right? It's in your own self-interest to be really forgiving because your own reception of forgiveness is connected to that. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's how serious this is. So, where on earth can we find the strength, the wherewithal to actually forgive? I mean, this is hard. Real forgiveness, not on paper in a church building in a sermon, but the actual kind that you have to engage, you know, enact in relationships, concrete relationships, real relationships, is incredibly difficult. And we'd be lying or naive, I think, to... to uh, to think otherwise. So where can we find the ability, the resources to forgive? I want, you to, I, want, I want you to note something here. The Lord calls us not merely to forgive in some abstract sense, but to forgive in a sense that's deep and sincere. Look, what the, look how he describes it here in Matthew 18. This is our parable again, verse 35. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you're like that unforgiving uh, servant, if you do not, he's going to throw you in jail too, in the metaphor, in the analogy, if you do not forgive your brother, he doesn't stop there, from your heart. Ugh. He didn't have to say that. So it's not a perfunctory, well, I forgive you. I will hold it over your head for the next 10 years and not act any different, but on paper, I know the Bible says that, so check box. Boop. No, from your heart. If, you don't, if you're not feeling it, you don't have it. I'm not saying you get it instantly. But that's the goal. The goal isn't to just sort of check some little doctrinal box so we can feel so good about ourselves or mouth the words, I forgive you. That's not what he's saying, is it? And then withdrawing emotionally for, you know, a year. That's what often happens. It's not holding the other person, you've officially forgiven them, but then you hold them emotionally hostage uh, until you've exacted your psychological revenge. And guess who gets to decide how long that is? You do. God's not in control, you are, right? That's not forgive. It's from the heart, or it's not a thing. That's the whole, that's the culmin, that's the climax of this parable. That's where it ends. When God forgives us, again, He does not remember our sins. I, he, we're going to remember the data. That's not the point here. God remembers, He knows. You don't get Alzheimer's because you, you know, you forgive somebody. Um, but it's as if it never happened. I don't look at you now, and you're, def you're not defined by that anymore. You're not a, a slave to this thing. It, Christ's blood really did forgive sins. And I am paying that forward. I'm an exemplar of that. I'm, I am connected to Jesus. He's the head. I'm part of his body. And so I do the same thing. I'm animated by the same spiritual DNA. I really do release you from that. I don't remember it in that sense. 
So how can we possibly develop that kind of heart? This inner spirit of forgiveness. I want to give you a quote now that from Miroslav Volf. He, he teaches at Yale. He's a theologian there. And he, he grew up not in the U.S. You can probably tell by the name Miroslav Volf, um, which probably means wolf in Serbian or Croatian, whichever. He, he's from the Balkans. You know that, that region right above Greece that a lot of wars have started in? Because it is got a whole lot of ethnic, linguistic, religious groups. They have uh, or, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians. They have uh, Catholic Christians. They have uh, atheists from the Soviet. It used to be part of Yugoslavia, which was a, you know, a, a atheistic uh, Eastern Bloc kind of place. Uh, they have uh, Muslims. And then Miroslav Volf grew up as a charismatic. He said there were 12 of us in the entire nation. <laughs> and so everybody fought with everybody. They've been fighting for eons, killing each other, bloodshed. You may remember the 90s, uh, in the Clinton presidency, America was involved in some military action there. So some of you are too young to remember all that. This guy knows he's forgotten more about injustice and oppression and trauma and forgiveness than we've ever learned, probably, just in terms of data. It's personal. It's his country. It's his culture. I mean, they're a byword for this. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace that explores all these things about forgiveness. And I want to give you a quote here from it. He talks about the difficulty. So if you find all this really difficult, you're in good company. This guy has spent his whole lifetime, his whole career, thinking about the biblical teachings on forgiveness and grace and, how, and, and justice and injustice. And if you think it's hard, he agrees with you. So you're on to something. Genuine repentance may be one of the most difficult acts for a person, let alone, let alone a community, to perform. For good reasons, Christian tradition thinks of genuine repentance not as a human possibility, but as a gift from God. In other words, it's really not going to happen unless you're lined up with a resource from God. We don't, we're we're going to go back to the ways of Lamech, revenge, without God in the picture. Deep within the heart of every victim, anger swells up against the perpetrator. Rage inflamed by unredeemed suffering. The imprecatory psalms, that's the psalms where you're calling down doom on somebody else, bash the heads of the Babylonian children, those psalms, that we go, oh my goodness, that's in there? Here's what he says. The imprecatory psalms seem to come upon victims' lips much more easily than the prayers of Jesus on the cross. Right? Do you typically first think, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do? There's another example of somebody who hasn't repented at all. Is it the soldiers he's talking about or the criminals beside him? Neither of them have said, I, I did this thing to you and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Now, I repent. Will you forgive me? He just forgives them. Anyway, side point. But we don't typically think Jesus' words first. We think the words of an imprecatory psalm. The powerful emotional pull of revenge is not the only reason we resist forgiving, however. Our cool sense of justice sends the same message. The perpetrator deserves unforgiveness. It would be unjust to forgive. In a sense, that's true. And so the Bible idea of forgiveness is never just, you know what, it's no big deal. God doesn't go, your sins, ah, ah, eh. God doesn't really go, eh, I don't think. And we're not asking anybody to go, you betrayed me? You really stuck a dagger in my heart? It's cool. No, that's not the point. The point is the price justice has been met. It's a debt. There's a reason he uses the word debt. It's an actual debt. But God takes that upon himself and pays it in Jesus. And it was an awful price. Forgiveness isn't free. 
for God and for Jesus. It's free for us, but the price was awful. So you're right to think this is a matter of justice. It's just that's the point. Christianity goes another step beyond all that and says we're going we're gonna to pay the price. But just as Jesus paid the price for our sins, we're being asked in the same way because we're so full of his love and forgiveness ourselves to emulate that and to take it upon us and, 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 and release them. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him. So I'm going to talk about a couple things here real quick that uh, ways we can be, uh, I guess, resources to develop that heart of, of uh, forgiveness. One is pity. I'm going to give the New American Standard version uh, here as well because I think some of us hear the word pity and we're going to give ourselves an out. Oh, pity, pitiful. That's pitiful. You know, don't have pity on me. That has a negative connotation. I think most of us like the word compassion still. It's the, it's the same word. Okay, and New American Standard actually says an out of compassion for him. So think that if pity to you means something different than compassion. Okay? Compassion, as we've said many times here, etymologically means to suffer with. So though Janan or Greg are the ones suffering and I'm not right now, there's a sense in which I so identify with their suffering that I'm, I'm there in their shoes suffering with them. That's compassion. That's, that's the turning point here, just like it was the turning point in the Good Samaritan story. Levite and the priest don't have it, the Samaritan does. That's what leads him to act in a way that shows grace. Here the grace is the grace of forgiveness, and it comes out of compassion as well. It's the capacity to get in the shoes of the one who's suffering. In this case, the one who's wronged you, and they're feeling bad about it. It's the ability to feel their distress, not just your distress. To see things through their eyes. And that can be admittedly difficult to do when we ourselves are in pain, when we've been wronged. But folks, here's the thing we got to recognize. When you or I are, are, are in pain, th there are a few things that draw us up into ourselves, inside ourselves more than pain. And it could be legitimate. God gave us feelings. But we have to recognize the danger because focusing on my own hurt can cause me to lose all perspective. And it can dwarf my ability to empathize with those outside the, 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 you know, the borders of me. If all I'm feeling is, is what's inside, pain is, 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 is inherently self-oriented, right? You're feeling, it hurts me. What's hurting? I am hurting. It's very reflexive. So if we just lean into that every time and go, well, I, I just want to talk about how I'm hurt. This really hurt. You don't understand. Let me tell everybody, this hurt me, 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 me. You are, by definition, heading in a direction that isn't about love, because love is, by definition, other-oriented. And I'm not saying it's sinister or something like that, or you're being selfish. I'm just saying we need to recognize that, that focusing on our own hurt, on hurt and, uh, you know, incessantly is going to dwarf that ability to, uh, to empathize, to think about things from the perspective of other people, what they may be going through. And so forgiveness is going to be really hard. Love is going to be really hard since it's essentially an outward orientation toward the needs of other people. The second thing, in addition to uh, empathy, is, is um, appreciating our own sinfulness. So wait a minute. Somebody says, wait a minute. I, I'm ta we're talking about when somebody sins against us. Right, we are. But you realize that when you're sinned against, 
the you who is sinned against is also a sinner? And I think sometimes in the moment of being hurt, we lose appreciation of our own status as sinner. And we're never not that. Though I've been sinned against, I myself am still a sinner. And when I'm fixated on the wrongs of another person, the chances are really high that I'm going to start minimizing my own sins. Remember the, the, the woman that's brought to Jesus in, caught in adultery? What do they want to do to her? We're going to kill her because she deserves it. She's a sinner. She's violating the Torah, the law of God. Who does she think she is? She's bringing taint on our community. We've got to make a statement or else we'll start a precedent. I mean, you can imagine all the justification. Here's Jesus' response. Let him who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. And they all shut up and left. Sorry for saying shut up. They all closed their mouths and left. Because there's not, that doesn't leave any humans. We're sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And sometimes what we need to do, folks, is zoom out. Our perspective is warped. It's too narrow. And we need to zoom out, change this pers the perspective, broaden it. And if we can keep on zooming out to we're like 30,000 feet, looking down on the whole thing, like when you're flying over you know, the Midwest in, a, in an airplane, right? It looks really different than when you're, when you're down there. And, and the further we zoom out, the closer we're getting to whose perspective? God's, who sees all. And when God looks down on a relationship where one person has sinned against another, he doesn't see, in his perspective, it's not a picture of one pristine, innocent person and one sinner. It's not that simple. God sees one sinner sinning against another sinner. Every single time. Never not the case. Matthew 18 Look what he says, what the master says. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? We forget that we need God's mercy just as much as anybody else. It isn't just a question of will the person petitioning me for forgiveness who really needs my forgiveness really messed up and they're kind of enslaved to that now it's a burden they bear of guilt they really want to be freed from that they need to be freed from that it's not just a question of will i give them mercy and how quick and quickly and how, will it look like god's it's also a question of do i realize i need mercy all the time that's what he's saying you both need mercy not just the one you're aware of who sinned against you Do we realize that our standing with God is never based on being a good boy or a good girl? What did Jesus say when somebody came up and said, good teacher? He said, there is, why do you call me good? There's no one who is good but God alone. And our sins, your sins may be different from the person who sinned against you. You could never do that or do that that many times or you fill in the blank. Are you going to withhold forgiveness for them because your sins are different than theirs? Because you're a sinner. You still owe a debt of transgression that you are un utterly and profoundly unable to pay. 
And in fact, folks, the odds are very decent. I, I, I can't, you know, I'm not God. I can't, I don't know. I'm not privy to all the arguments, but, you know, I've, I've sat with a few people before who are having problems. I've had my own problems, caused a good many of them. <laughs> the odds are really pretty strong that even in the moment when you're feeling sinned against in some insurmountable way, even in that relationship, in that micro-problem, the odds are real high that, that uh, you've also wronged the person that just wronged you so severely. Maybe in ways that you're less aware of. Maybe you've been wronging them that way for a long time, and that's not unrelated to the way they responded to you, and it goes back and forth. That, I mean, that's just how relationships usually are. Not every time. Sometimes there are perfect people who just somebody for no reason comes up and whops them the side of the head. Actually, that never happens that I've ever seen. And I'm not saying everything, everybody gets blamed everywhere. I'm just saying, a lot of times when we're so aware of the trauma that we're feeling, we lose the perspective that we might be complicit some. Maybe we both need mercy, like this parable says. All right. So what I'm saying is, without seeing that loving like God means forgiving like God. We're going to end up imprisoning ourselves, going to jail, as it were, in a cell of our own bitterness. doesn't work anyway. And we may possibly even jeopardize our eternal souls. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's hard. But it's, a lot of things are hard that are beautiful and better. And they're made possible, not just in theory, but really, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank you all for your attention. We're going to stand and sing. If we can help you in some way, come closer to the Lord, obey Him, become a Christian. We want to help you do that. While together we all stand and sing.